Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Ordena Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Kitubot, daf Pei Hey, page 85. So this was a really interesting daf to me because it deals with a bunch of different issues in terms of how do we establish ownership of property or, you know, we were in the, we start with the middle of a discussion still about, uh, you know, uh, a creditor who seizes property of somebody and then maybe the person dies or the person died afterwards. Is that valid? Um, and what I found fascinating about this stuff is, is that really the halacha of this stuff is discussed through cases, right? Like this happened in front of this rabbi and this is how they ruled. And in a way, you know, it makes sense that this is sort of how we establish legal precedent, right? These aren't necessarily halachot around a mitzvah or a particular commandment in the Torah, but this is more looking at how practical financial law worked within a halachic system. And in the same way that lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, so maybe one of our co-learners who is a lawyer can refine this a little better than how I'm going to say it. But the same way that often when, you know, a brief is prepared, you cite previous cases, right? You'll say like, you know, this case of this plaintiff versus this defendant and this is the legal precedent we get from this case. That's essentially what's happening in this particular DAF. Um, is, you know, they're, they're going through a variety of different cases um, or sort of different ideas, and they bring a, a case or a series of cases to illustrate how do we actually rule in these types of cases. So I, we obviously can't read the entire DAF. I want to read one section here that's on Ahmed Aleph, uh, which gets to the issue of a judge and who is a judge actually allowed to rely on. And so they bring the following story here. Um, So a woman had to take an oath in order to avoid, I guess, some type of payment in Rava's court. So Rav Chista's daughter comes, who is married to Rava. It's interesting, she doesn't have her own name, but she's just always referred to as Bad Rav Chista. And she says to her husband, she goes, I know that this woman takes false oaths. Like she's a liar, basically. So Rabbi reversed his the obligation of the oath and basically put it on the other party, right? Whoever she was trying to maybe get out of paying, that they now had to take an oath that this woman owed uh, that person money and that he needed to collect this debt from the woman, right? And so... This is giving us a story about what happens in a case where maybe the court doesn't trust one of the litigants. You put the oath on the litigant that you more likely would trust. But what's interesting about this story is, is that sort of that the wife is like involved in the court case. She knew what was going on and she interferes and basically gives her husband advice and says like, hey, we know that this woman is not meant to be trustworthy. So then they bring another story, um, knowing that sort of he just trusted his wife about this. So one time, Rav Papa and Rav Matna were sitting before Rava, and a document was basically brought before Rava in his court to examine. Rav Papa said to Rava, He says, I actually know about this document, and it actually was already paid. So Rava says to him, is there another person who could, um, who could, um, who could join, you know, who could uh, testify to this, right? 
um, and, and, and could, you know, say that this is, uh, you, you know, that, that, that could confirm this, right? Amarle, la, Amarle. So he says, he says, no, he says there isn't anybody. Amarle, afagav de ekamar, edachad lav klumho, right? And so he basically says to him, he says, Rava says back to him, okay, although you can attest that it's been paid, we don't allow one witness. Now, this doesn't make any sense because he allowed his wife to be one witness. So therefore, Amarle Ravada Barmana, so Ravada Barmana says to Rava, Right? Should Rav Papa not be, you know, trusted basically like the daughter of Rav Chisa? Yes, the obvious question. Right? So Rava writes black. I basically, I've relied on Rav Chisa's daughter, right? I've relied on my wife. It's interesting he keeps referring to her as Bat Rav Chisa because I know with certainty about her. In other words, I trust her. I know she's always truthful. But you, Rav Papa... I don't always know. Like, in other words, I'm not sure that you're a person I could trust. Now, I think that's like a very, very bold thing for him to say. Amar Rav Papa, hashta to Amar Mar, kim li begave. Rav Papa says back, you know, now the master, he's talking about Rav has said that claim that I know with certainty about him in a certain matter, right? In other words, he's saying he has seen, you know, Rav Papa, Rav Papa saying he's seen that Rav has said kim li begave, right? That I know that I could trust him. Milsahi kagon abba barbri dekimli begave karana shtara apume, right? What he's trying to say is, is that a claim that can be used in court, if a judge knows that somebody's telling the truth, even though under normal circumstances his testimony wouldn't be allowed, in that case, when he needs to rely on it, we allow we allow that to be legal. So what he gives as an example, of puppy says, if my son Abba Mar, who I know with certainty, right, he knows he's always going to tell the truth claims that that document had already been paid, I can tear the document up on the basis of his word. Rav Papa's basically sort of trying to come back. It's not clear to me if he's trying to say he understands what Rava did, that in other words, Rava couldn't fully trust him, but and he's giving an example of someone he could fully trust, or if he's trying to sway Rava to, you know, uh, to trust him. And then the Gemara basically asks, it's kranasaka dateich, right? How could, it, how could you think in your mind that a court could actually tear up a document based on one Witness, Ella, Marnashtara Apume, right? Rather, the statement is that you can weaken the document, right? You, you, you sort of, you can take into consideration that word, right? What that witness says, um, but you can't, you know, maybe say you don't need further proof, but you can't actually literally tear up the document itself. So it's interesting to see here sort of like the influence that some of these judges had, right? Like that they would sort of turn to other people um, to see what they had to say about the actual litigants. I found that to be very, very interesting because it's not sort of something that I think completely happened, you know. Well, I guess we sort of have in our court in America, you know, like you swear, you know, you swear to tell the truth and the whole truth. Uh, but here it's like not just based on what the witness has to say, but the judge is allowed to sort of, you know, say whether or not they actually trust this particular judge. Um, so, uh, you know, very, very interesting passage, um, and a lot of things to say also just about Bat Ravchista, you know, also that she sort of is not given, uh, an actual name itself, but I think it's really interesting to see sort of, um, you know, how they, you know, uh, you know, different ways they use to sort of verify some of these cases. And we see on this whole daft, these cases are very difficult. It's like 
something was left with a person with no verification or you need to trust somebody swearing. And so I think the judges, or particularly Rava we see, sort of uses any help that he can get. So I always find Rava impressive because that's Rava. But I'm a little startled by the, I want to say the degree of subjectivity here, right? The I understand that Rava has broad shoulders and he's able to, we are able to rely on him saying, you know, this is what he accepts. He trusts his wife. He isn't sure about somebody else's trustworthiness. I, I'm, He's going to use every bit of evidence that he can. I get all that, but it's not quite streamlining the system uh, for for future judges, shall we say, right? In terms of establishing case law to then be precedent and then say, this is the way we do it. Um, it still seems there's a, a good amount of wiggle room or, or subjectivity on the part of the judge. Um, I'm going to actually carry on here. On top of bet, we've got more case law. Um, and this is when we've got several cases, I would say, that are um, pertaining to property of somebody who has died. And now the question is, you know, who's who's really there to inherit? Um, and it's not necessarily clear. And I want to just note that as your dinner, as with the bit that you've been reading, which is in Aramaic, I'm also reading in Aramaic, so forgive some of the stumbles here on the vocabulary, but um, the pronunciation is a little less familiar to us than the Hebrew, but it also tells us what generation, or that this is no longer referring to Breita, it's referring to Mishnah, right? This is case law of the Amoraim. How gavar the Afkid Shav Marganita did Sire Besidna be Rebbe Miashia? Miasha bar parades Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. So we have here a man. He's not named here, right? He he puts seven pearls, pearls marganita, um, tied up in the sheet in the house of Rabbi Miasha, who is the son of the son, so the grandson of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. And then Shreve Rabbi Miasha velo pakid. Rabbi Miasha died, and he didn't tell anybody. You know, he didn't give any instructions about these pearls, right? So then now what's supposed to happen? Um, there's there's no default, or maybe there's a default, but this is exactly where they're trying to figure that out. So they bring the case before Rabbi Ami, right? Who's who's the owner? Who's the heir? So he says, well, they belong to, he, he says, I know that Ramiyasha, the son of the son of Rabbi Yashub ben Levi, was not wealthy, right? He it's not like he had just tons of gems lying around. Um, so rather, right, if he's not wealthy, he can't afford such thing. Usually, then what that means is that somebody's coming when somebody comes to claim them, which is why they have to come to Rabbi Ami. It, it seems a little bit kind of. Some of the details are left out of the story, but that's the reason that there's a case, right? That somebody comes to say. Those are my pearls. Um, so then he has to prove. It's reasonable to think that, in fact, the person who's coming to make the claim really owns them and that they were just on hold with Ramiyasha because he wasn't wealthy and people would have known if he would have had seven pearls. But on the other hand, the person who claims that he was the he had made this deposit, you know, for safekeeping with Ramasha has to come and also say that there was some kind of distinguishing mark to say that there was a siman that once he can identify it, then we can trust that he's going to be the owner. So then the Gemara wants to know, right? He says, 
להתם, אבל רגיל דאייל ונפיק להתם, אם האיני שחרינה אפקיד, ואיהו מחזיק חזה. So the Gemara says that um, when we've, the distinguishing mark, that kind of, um, you know, where you can identify the, the pearl besides just saying, oh yes, those are mine, right, is usually only going to work when you don't have somebody who's always in and out of that home or in and out of that place of business, right? Because if somebody is usually in and out there, right, this da'al vanafik, he goes in and he goes out, um, then you might say, well, somebody else deposited, he saw it, he knew about it, and therefore he's able to claim it's his because he can identify it because he knows the distinguishing mark because he's seen it often enough. I'm thinking of like, let's say a pawn shop where somebody comes to deposit their own stuff, but also is able to peruse what's, what's there and in fact identify things that might actually not be theirs. So I think this is a really important caveat to the idea of being able to identify something based on its distinguishing marks. Okay, we've got it. And, and that's it. Meaning that's the case of, of the pearls and Miyasha, the Gemara goes on. How gavr da'afkeid Kasa de Kaspa be Kasa, Jehiv Kasa, Velo Pakid. So similarly, there's somebody de- left or deposited a goblet, a silver cup um, in the house of Kasa. Kasa dies without giving any instructions. It's not just Rabbi Amu who sees these cases. They come before Rav Nachman, you know, to figure out who really owns the goblet. Amar Lahu, Yadana be Bachasa. So again, I know that Chasa was not wealthy, meaning it's not his goblet. So somebody has left it with him for safekeeping. So likewise, again, you know, if the person who claims that he is the person who left it there can can identify the uh, distinguishing mark, then then that makes it easier, right? We're going to say it goes to him. And again, if the same rule about the distinguishing marks that you can identify it, but you have to be somebody who's not usually in and out of those same premises. So the case here basically repeats, and in the same language, the terms of the previous case, the seven pearls. Now we've got the silver goblet. It's different players, but it's the same rules. The Gemara has a third case. This time it's silk. This time it's Ravdimi who, who dies. They come before Rabbi Abba. It's the same case. It's the same exact terms, the same exact concerns. Um, and that's exactly the issue, right? That there's external circumstances that enable the judge to adjudicate the case to determine who really is entitled to this item. The Gemara goes on to tell a story of somebody who does leave instructions on his deathbed. He says, my property goes to Tuvia. So the person dies, Tuvia comes to get what he's um, inherited, and Rav Yochanan says, Tuvia came, meaning that's enough. This guy is enough. Now, the Gemara goes on to say, and I'm not going to deal with it inside in the interest of time, but what happens if there's Tuvia and there's Rav Tuvia? Well, you know, that sounds like it's two separate people, and the odds are good that it's two separate people, unless there's a case where maybe he's very close with Tuvia, with Rav Tuvia, excuse me, and therefore calls him Tuvia, because he doesn't call him by his title, because they're already close. So the adjudication would take that into consideration. Um, what happens if you have two people with the same name, and they both come, two Tuvias come? Now what's, what's going to 
happened. And then the question is, well, who are these people? Is one close and one far? Is one a Talmit Chacham and one just a neighbor? Um, and the the case is kind of like, the, the Gemara gives case after case to say, you know, under these circumstances, here's the policy, right? The policy would be um, the Talmud Chacham would get it. If there's a neighbor and a relative, then the neighbor is closer than the relative. We've got a citation from a verse in Proverbs that says, Tov Shachain Karov Me'acharachok, right? That a close neighbor is better than a distant brother. The implication being he'll, you know, that it would go to the neighbor in that case. And the bottom line is that if you end up with a case that cannot be decided, you have two neighbors or two brothers or two, right, two people who are clearly in the running to be designated heirs, then the sages or the judge in this case would determine, right, it's left to the judge's discretion. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our book page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm-hmm.